podcast, Conversations with Writers About Writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. There has never been a contemporary Christian music industry in Nashville without producer Brown Bannister. He was here from day one. Brown Bannister is a legend here in Nashville, but he's not the kind of legend one admires from a distance. He's incredibly kind and generous and just a genius at getting artists to do their best work. It's my honor to have Brown Bannister as my guest this week on the Habit Podcast. Hey, Brown Bannister, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast and the first ever video edition of the Habit Podcast. Wow, this is historic. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, I, the first time, I got, I've, got a, I've got an anecdote. Okay. Um, when I was in high school, I had a car with a cassette tape deck, and I was pretty proud of that, but I only had two or three cassette tapes. And one of them was Amy Grant's Age to Age. Age to Age. Yeah. Yes. El Shaddai and all that. Right. So I listened to a lot of Amy Grant because I had such a, and I didn't know, not only did I not know you were the producer, I didn't know what a producer was. Sure. But you, of course, you were the producer. That, that wasn't the first thing you produced. That, that wasn't the no, first No, that story. was my fifth album I'd done with her. Okay. Yeah. By that time. But um, so I was in the, the, parking lot of the high school with my friend John we were, and we were sitting there listening to Amy Grant in the school parking lot um, or the actually the stadium parking lot because we weren't allowed to park in the school parking lot because we were juniors and um, and listening to Amy Grant listening to as I remember the way I remembered it was actually the El Shaddai song and this person knocks on my window Okay, and I roll it down a little bit and it's this very belligerent young man and he says do you remember me? I said um, no and how old are you at this time? I was a junior in high school. Okay. He said, do you remember me? And I said, no. And then he said, do you remember me? And I said, well, maybe. And then he started like beating me up through the car window. No. Yeah. While Amy Grant is just warbling, El Shaddai. <laughs> and then some, somehow we, John and I both ended up outside the car getting beaten up by this guy and his brother and his cousin while, while, Amy Grant, so like you, you helped produce the <laughs> the soundtrack, the soundtrack for like this <laughs> this terrifying moment in my life. Which, although I have to say, even at the, even at the time, I thought if I don't like really get hurt here, this is going to be funny. It's going to be a great story to, to think yeah. about. You yeah. know, Amy Grant singing that you know, as is, we're getting sort of flung around the parking lot, and, and you know, these, that these is songs. surreal. Isn't that funny? What? Who were these people? And what, what did it you, was kind of a case of mistaken identity, basically. Oh, it was. Yeah, and and who? Perfect. I'll tell you who these people were. One of them ended up in jail for either murder or manslaughter. Whoa. Um, okay. But anyway, that's I just that is. I, I wanted to tell somebody. I've been wanting to tell you know well, somebody ever since then. I'm a good person to tell. And you're, uh, you since you had a minor role in this story. Yeah, absolutely. No. Uh, I'm glad you healed. <laughs> yeah. So you. Um, uh, you're you're a, a role model, a mentor, and a hero to so many people who I, I mean, creative people that I admire. And I remember something that that um, Ben Shive told me that he he was he was quoting you, and you may have been I think you were quoting somebody else. But that there are people in the world who are kind of here I am, and there are the people who say there you are, mm-hmm. and and you are. Very much a there you are kind of. I mean, you seem to have embraced that as your calling to say it's my. That's fair. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's fair. Of helping other people. Yeah. Uh, find their, you know, do their best work. Yeah. And um, I'm just interested in. That's not a question. That was a statement. But. That's okay. Well, I think actually, the quote I I don't know where it came from, but when, but my oldest son Ben. Uh, I don't even know what the context was. We might have been talking about Peter Pan, uh, uh, Hooked, or Hook, Mm -hmm. you know, that version with Robin Williams. And, you know, that scene when he he's old and pudgy and got glasses and a beard and Uh doesn't look anything like Peter Pan. (laughs) And all the Lost Boys are there, and he's thinking, oh, my goodness, here's all the Lost Boys, but they don't recognize him. And then finally... They're like really like what's who is this? What's going on? And then one of them just like takes off the glasses and like pulls his face back so it's not wrinkled and every, everything. And he says, "There you are, Peter." Uh, Which is so. What a sweet moment, right? Yeah. 
Um, and I, I think we were talking about that. And Ben said, my son, Ben said, you know, there's really two kinds of people. If you have to break it down into two kinds, you know, Richard Rohr would not approve of that, <laughs> but uh, dualistic thinking, but there are two kinds of people in, in terms of how people present themselves. There's a, here I am person, like you said, and there you are person. And that just really struck me, uh, especially as it relates to, um, you know, I've worked with so many artists and, you know, at the very sort of the essence of an artist is somebody who's going to bring this thing to the world and be center stage and in the spotlight, all, all of that. And, uh, even in spite of that, and maybe it's because I, I I was working in contemporary Christian music, and there just kind of a different motivation mm-hmm. for what we were trying to do at the time, and what most of us I would say were about. Um, you know, I got to work with some amazing people. I would say Amy Grant epitomizes the "there you are." person as an artist. I, I remember my wife and I were vacationing in Florida with her family and with Amy's family. And, and we're, you know, just hanging out, eating yogurt and just having a great conversation. And these two girls come up like, Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It's baby grand. I mean, they're just like really over the top. I mean, we're on a, you know, we're in seaside, you know, it's like sort of out of context. <laughs> and, um, you know, they just go on and on. And, and Debbie, my wife, said afterwards, she said, I know why God didn't make me be an artist, because I, I, I couldn't take that, yeah. you know. And afterwards, she said, Amy, what, what is going on there? Like, you, they were just like, I don't know, just raving over you. Like, they, if there had been an altar, they would have bowed <laughs> down to it. And, uh, you know, how do you how do you take that, you know, and process that? And Amy said, well, I mean, I learned a long time ago. It's not about me. It's about where they were when they heard a song that I happened to be singing that probably somebody else wrote, or I wrote with them Mm -hmm. that somebody else produced that, you know, all these other people were involved with. And it was that moment, that intersection of whatever the song was and whatever was going on in their life. That's what they're really talking about. Mm -hmm. They're not talking about me. Yeah. And, and it just, that is like totally her. And, um, we see it and I see it in, you know, other people too, but it, it, you put somebody like that in a room, in a backstage area, in a green room, in a reception, in a, in a banquet where she's being honored and, and you just watch her and it doesn't matter how many people are there and how many people are waiting to talk to her, whoever she's talking to. She does not like look at you and then like check over the shoulder. You know, she just doesn't do it. And I feel like that, that is, uh, that's a really, it's a really special quality. I don't think it's a, like a technique or, you know, like, Hey, I'm going to be different, differential. I just think it's the way she's wired. So uh, I think it's, there's nothing wrong with here. I am people because we need those too. But I think it's really interesting in context of music to be that kind of person. Like when my friend Leland Sklar, who was going to play at the Prince's Trust, famous bass player, uh-huh. and he's got this autograph bass with all of these famous artists that he's played for. And he's going to the Prince's Trust and Paul McCartney is going to be there. And of course, that's like, that is the epitome of a bass player. Yeah. So he's hoping he can meet Paul, who he's never met. And he walks up to him finally in the in this green room reception, and he's going to say, "Sir Paul, I would love and be honored for you to sign my autograph base. I mean, I got Phil Collins, Eric Clapton, you know, all these people. But man, to have you on it!" So he's about to say that, and Paul turns and says, "Leland Sklar, <laughs> you're my favorite bass player." I mean, can you imagine that? Like wow. Paul McCartney saying that to you. <laughs> And in that sense, I think even somebody as mega as Paul McCartney, he seems like that too. If you watch different things, whether it's car karaoke or 
whatever. Yeah. Uh, he is that he's kind of got that deferential there you are kind of personality too. So anyway, that was sort of the background of that. Do you comment. think it's a a personality or is it something that's, that somebody can learn? I mean, well, you know, I'm a person of faith, so I believe transformation is possible. No. So transformation's hard, <laughs> but it's possible. And if you're thinking of other mo- role models for a uh, there you are person, Jesus would be a pretty good one. Yeah. So if transformation's possible, then yeah, I think people can grow into that. I do think there's a natural kind of just DNA, just wiring, Enneagram, sure. <laughs> whatever yeah. you want to call it. I think there's a natural kind of just this is the way you're made. But yeah, I think you can I think you can grow into that. Yeah. You so you're the uh, the, the director of the School of Music at, at Lipscomb. Lipscomb and I know you've been you have a class that where you help prepare people for a for a life of creative work. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um is this a topic that that you Absolutely. Yeah. I, it's uh, it's called identity and artistry. Uh-huh. Actually, Charlie Peacock, you know, designed the uh-huh. curriculum, and uh, he he had to leave because he got to feeling bad and just couldn't carry on. So they brought me in for an interim guy, and um, he had wonderful course descriptions, but no breadcrumbs. There was no, <laughs> no syllabus. <laughs> I didn't really know what a syllabus was yeah. until I got there. So. Uh, or that syllabi was the plural of yeah, syllabus. Right. Yeah. But um, he, it was a wonderful idea. And so I got a, a Bible teacher from Christ Pres Academy mm-hmm. to come in with me. And we divided up several, seven modules. It's called Artistry and Identity. And the whole idea is, as an artist, as a personality, as a, somebody who's in the, a public persona, you have the you have the public persona and then you have the private persona, and both personas really take a, a, um, a remarkably different skill set to nurture. Yeah, and if you can learn how to identify what those are, and nurture and care for those, and bring resonance between them, then you're probably going to be less likely to go off in the ditch. A friend of mine, uh, Brett Warren, great country songwriter, and Al Andrews from uh, Porter's Call. Porter's Call? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, They have a group with some really, I mean, he won't tell me the names, but really big male country artists. Not like big, but, you know, know, really successful. And it's called Prehab. Wow. Which is great. Which is awesome concept. (laughs) So can we just address things before we get to the ditch and having to get a winch and pull you out? So that's the idea behind the artistry and identity thing. So it's just getting getting young people to think about, um, you know, what would it be like to be famous? What's how does commerciality and success? How does that play into your art and what does it say about it? What does it not say about it? All these kind of aspects of success, failure, fear, all those kind of things. Uh, and what would it be like if you actually could do the artist thing and you weren't the center of the universe? You know, that would be interesting. So, <laughs> so you yeah. know, it's a, it's a fascinating class. Yeah. I can't remember if I heard you say this or Sarah Groves say this because it was in a conversation you had with Sarah Groves. Yeah. And- in the, the Second Muse podcast, another Rabbit Room podcast. Which is awesome. Yeah. I highly recommend episode, it. Yeah. And um, matter of fact, some of the anecdotes I wanted you to tell are in that episode. It's great, so I'm just going to direct people to that, anecdote, yeah. to that episode. But anyway, uh, you said, <laughs> or she said, one of you, you are not your gift. She said that. Well, she I can imagine you saying it too. So profound. Yeah. Yeah. And that's such an important thing for a creative person. To, to be, be able to separate that. Yeah. Gosh, that is huge. And I think, you know, a, a, a plumber a, a plumber doesn't make the mistake of saying, my plumbing. <laughs> yeah, like if, if, if... I am my plumbing. Yeah, I am my plumbing. Like they have sense enough to say, I got this thing I do, yeah. and I've got gifts in this direction. Yeah. But if somebody were to say to me, hey, I'm, you know, my plumbing is, the plumbing you did for me is leaking, <laughs> then I wouldn't think I must be a failure as a person, or, yes, or right. I'm going to quit. 
or I would just go fix the plumbing, you know? Yeah. It's funny. That's a great analogy. (laughs) But, uh, unless the plumber's a workaholic. Yeah, I guess um, there, there may be some plumbers. You know, built this business and it's all about that. You know, it's possible. It is, it's, it is possible, but it it does seem like less likely. Seems a little less likely. Yeah. Yeah, From the plumbers I know, I have, I've known a few and and they, they aren't as neurotic as the creative people. I would agree with that. Yeah. They're characters, though. They really are. Yeah. Um, and, you know, especially, you know, since writers are always, you know, since anecdote is sort of a, our fuel, plumbers come up with so many more anecdotes in a week than the, than the rest of us do in a year. So do you hang out with plumbers? I mean, I have. Is that part I, of I, how I, you it's do It's a summer your, job when I was younger. Is but. that part of the habit, the creative <laughs> habit? That's right, yeah. It should be. It's awesome. Yeah. I got a few... I got a few practitioners I could turn you on to. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. You have um, uh, when you when you describe how you got into the business of producing, mm-hmm. um, and as again, I have to direct our listeners to the second Muse episode with you and and, uh, and, Sarah. and Sarah Groves, yeah. where you tell tell some of those hilarious stories. Um, you emphasize the fact that you were just an amateur who kind of backed your way into this job um that might be putting it that might be hyperbole it <laughs> might be overstating yeah. <laughs> but here's here's what i think about when i because you know i've heard you talk about what an amateur you were but you know the real meaning of the word amateur is somebody who does what they love for, do for love they do what they do for love instead of money they and do it for love that, instead of money or yeah yeah like I'm an amateur so, photographer. So we, right. We, we use amateur yeah. as a term of abuse. Yeah. As a rank amateur. But the truth is, yeah. an amateur, I mean, uh, etymologically, and that's just a lover, a person who loves what they so, do. So if I look that up, and if I look up the definition, it will say that? Yeah. If you, like if you took Latin, amela mas amat, means I, lo- to, I love. Man, <laughs> I should have stayed with Latin. I was going to be a doctor. Oh, yeah. So that's when I went to college. I was pre-med. Yeah. But obviously, I didn't take the yeah, Latin with me. Didn't make it that far. Yeah. But yeah, that's what amateur means. Somebody who does who, who does what they do out of love. Wow, I love that. So you don't have to be. You don't have to stop being an amateur when you become when you start getting paid. Yeah. And um, seems like you love. Seems, seems like you're still an amateur, even though you're yeah at sort of at the, at the top of that profession. You're still an amateur because you you love what you do. I do love what I do. I do love what I do. It's awesome. Never would have expected it. You know, didn't anticipate it, didn't pursue it. But, you know, God just kind of plops you down in something and breathes on it. And, you know, all of a sudden there's there's a reason to keep going. Yeah. Uh, certainly when we started, because uh, we were the Christian, like contemporary Christian music. It, I don't know if that had been named yet, mm-hmm. but it was just about that time. On the, uh, you know, like east of the Mississippi. So there was the West Coast. We were the East Coast and, um, or part of it. Not like we were all of it. But um, the, when, when we were working on all those records, you know, I mean, this is 1976. So I was probably making $2 an hour, you know, <laughs> for, for probably over five years. I made it up to like um, five or six dollars. Okay. wasn't even minimum wage <laughs> at the time, but but you know you you couldn't have like you could not have like talked me out of it because there was a real we were really part of a uh, also I, I was part of a kind of a revival on the corner of Sixteenth and Grand. Mm-hmm. The, the city just put up a, a little sign with uh, about. Christian music at Coinbase Bookstore, that. really yeah. cool. Yeah, and Fisk University uh-huh. on the Black Gospel side, and um, and and it was that I think books, that, that has your name on it. That, 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 it does, that, it does, it. which is kind of surprising. <laughs> but I was in a group called Homecoming. We played there all the time, and and man, it was electric. It was electric. I mean, people were getting saved left and right when you walked in that church. It was the same denomination I grew up in, Church of Christ. But you walk in and there's black people, white people, long-haired people, hippies, sandals, suits, Messianic Jews. I, I mean, you could just, 
name it. And they were there and it was like just, you could just see the building kind of like pulsing yeah. with joy. And wow. It was just amazing. So um, I don't know. I, I feel like, I feel like that was just a, a really special time and time of growth for me. It's why I, I worked there in 72 in the inner city kind of ministry of that church. And I had two job offers when I got out of school to be in ministry. But my friend Chris said, just come to Nashville where you don't have a job, but you love it. And that's why I went back. And that was all part of uh, fostering, you know, Papa Don, Don Finto was really a big part of fostering the creative community without even saying, I'm going to foster the creative community. We're going to serve artists. It just was so organic. And uh, what, so what does that look like? I mean, you say he fosters it without consciously saying he's going to foster it. Well, he took a lot of people that were, uh, uh, when Michael Smith came to town, Mike Blanton, Dan Harrell, who managed Amy, me, and there, uh, other people, Chris Harris. I mean, there were just a community of people that were musicians. And literally, he would take mainly the guys. He would take the guys, and he would bring us over his house and just, like, speak into our lives. He, he would pick up a bowl and a towel and wash our feet, literally. Really? Literally. I mean, he was just such a—he he is a total there-you-are pastor— mm-hmm. So, you know, you see this kind of uh, uh, approach and uh, towards life and community sort of playing out in many roles, you know, and um, it it was uh, before big programs and all that kind of stuff in churches. It was small, but it was just vibrant and alive and organic and tangible and action. You know, it was like there were was action without anybody saying, hey, we need to take action. You know, yeah. it, just, it just was. It was just kind of revelation, I think. So that really, I think that really impacted me in terms of my, my experience in music. The only, reason, the only reason I was doing it, I, I mean, I liked it, but was to impact culture and be part of like kingdom work. That was it. And I would say even now, one of the greatest gifts I feel like God's given me is just not to be jaded because hmm. there were plenty of things to be jaded about getting ripped off and not paid. And, you know, people, you know, like Christians you're dealing with in business, not following through their word. And mm-hmm. I mean, over and over and over again, you know, uh, you, you could find a million reasons, but man, I just always saw I always heard the stories from the artists hmm. that they would tell about letters they got or, yeah. you know, things that would happen on the road, or whatever. So I don't know. I'm still excited about it. <laughs> and, and I'm excited about it much broader for Christians in, in music with these students to be, uh, to be portals of light and to be laying down the breadcrumbs to the kingdom without being religious necessarily in their content. Yeah. I kind of got off on a big sort of woo, but it's really, it's really, it's so huge for me. I mean, I could, uh, I was talking to some seniors yesterday because they're, they're graduating in December and just about what, what their capstone project is. And I said, look, this is not academics. Yeah. We have to check the box, but it's not about data. It's about experience and immersion and what the craft you want to be in. And, uh, I just started speaking to each one of them about who who I saw them to be and like how important it is yeah, the music's great, find your genre, brand, all that stuff. What's your voice? Mm-hmm. What is the voice that God's given you? What are you bringing to the to the world? What are you saying? What 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 can you only you say? Which another quote from Sarah, I think she said it in that podcast is. Uh, the thing I realized I, once I stopped feeling like competitive to to do or, or pressure to do better mm-hmm. is if you have something to say and you have found your voice, then there are enough ears to listen. I love that. Oh, that's great. Isn't that, isn't that, that sweet? That is so good. So, um, yeah. I, and I, so I'm sitting there talking to these seniors yesterday, just yesterday afternoon, and just tearing up mm-hmm. because I'm so moved. I, I can get there. 
I can cry on demand if you want. I I don't know what's going on with me, but it's it's so awesome to from the very beginning with Amy and Michael and Stephen Curtis and all these people. Uh, sorry. such an honor such an honor to to just be put in a place where you're a a small part of it and where you're man I didn't (laughs) expect this but just that you get to see um, be a part of just shepherding that process which is for me it's more of a shepherding process I'll never forget we did that album where you got beat up on, uh, Age to Age. Uh, That was the shift in Amy's uh, trajectory where she started playing arenas. Mm -hmm. And so we do that album up in the mountains, Caribou Ranch, and uh, record this. And Smitty's like, hey, I got this idea for this song. It's thy word. And so we record thy word. This is before the whole worship movement, you know, big deal and uh yeah way way decades and uh and i'll never forget going to see one of her first concerts on that tour it was in houston i go into this arena the show's already started and she's singing she and smitty are up there singing thy word and people are just like it's like Every hand raised, every eye closed, every head bowed. I mean, it's just spontaneous. And it was really kind of before that was cool, you know, or accepted. You know, that would be kind of like, whoa, you're a little radical. And to walk in and see, I don't know, 8,000, 10,000 people singing the words to thy word, you know, proclaiming that God's word actually could shed enough light on their path to show them the next step. That's, that's humbling. Yeah. And that's, it's very moving. And it's why I get, it's why I get emotional on it, about it because I actually believe that the Holy Spirit can inhabit those ideas. And, and then when it drops on somebody, you know, it's like, Oh, you're ready to hear something, you know, that yeah. happens. Yeah. So anyway, I'm well, going to tell you one other story yeah. from that same album. There was a, I think it was the same album. Might have been straight ahead, the next one. I have decided to follow Jesus, Michael Card song. And a friend of mine went to a conference in California. A guy from Zimbabwe was there. And he was telling his story. He did a little video for me. And he said, tell him, tell him again, I want Brown to hear this. Well, I was running from God. My mother and grandmother loved Jesus. And I was running from God. And just as hard as I could. And for years I did that. And one day I, I was in a market in Zimbabwe and a song called by Amy Grant, uh, I have decided to follow Jesus, came on the intercom in his great accent. And he said, I don't know what happened, but I fell to my knees and said, I'm sorry, Lord. Now he pastors multiple churches. And, and you think about the power of all of our, you know, like what you do, what, you know, the rabbit room, the, the, all these fantastic communities of faith-filled people uh, putting things out into the world, what, what the potential of it is, is mind-boggling. So that sort of keeps me going. <laughs> you know, I was going to ask you, when you were talking about how the, <clears throat> that you, you gave me a list of good reasons to be jaded and you said you've never been jaded, and I was going to ask you why, but I think you just answered yeah, that question, okay. didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you hear Armin Morales, one of the first songs I wrote was called Praise the Lord. It was like Song of the Year by the Imperials, Russ Taft, famously sang it. And we were doing uh, this 30-year, 40-year kind of reunion thing that Stan Moser put on. They were performing, did an interview with me and them. I said, hey, Armin, do you all still sing that song? He said, every night. He kind of talks like, every night. He's he's the face. (laughs) But... He said every night, and I said, that's amazing. You still see the response? Yep. Friend. And he talked about this guy that was his wife left him. Uh, all he was left with was a chair, a table. There was a cassette player and his guns. That was all that was left. He was about to take his life. 
And for some reason, he pressed play on the cassette player, and it was that song, When You're Up Against the Struggle That Shatters All Your Dreams and Your Hopes Have Been Cruelly Crushed by Satan's Manifested Schemes. And it's just, it goes on to talk about looking up, and he, he didn't kill himself. He got all straightened out and everything. I mean, it's just, there are so many stories, and I'm sure you guys have talked to artists all over or writers all over that have those anecdotes. Is that not amazing that we get to like be a part of actually affecting change in somebody's life, whether it's not committing suicide or, or, or a change of, of thinking, you know, which I think, I think you're, what you're doing is way more in the, in the realm of, of culturally shaping things and philosophically shaping things, the potential you know, of what you're doing is, is, it's fantastic. So anyway, well, let's talk about you nevertheless. Okay. Th- thank you for that. But, 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 but there you are. <laughs> yeah. Come on. No, no, it, it, it is. I mean, I, I didn't know. I'm so now we're back on. There you are. I, I didn't know the, that this was from Peter Pan, but, but that I love that idea of this, of this self that's in there. Yeah. And you need somebody else to say, there you are. And, and that's, you know, I mean, I, I know that's what you do as a producer. And now that you're in education, right? I mean, mm-hmm. producing and, and teaching and, and running this program, a lot of parallels there? A lot of parallels. A lot of parallels. Because it's all about, it, it's all about seeing. Yeah. So what you're trying to do is see that person, that artist, that creative, that writer, and and see, see what you see about them because mm-hmm. you, you have that, uh, more, you know, uh, longer focal point yeah. on them. Uh, and then, you, you know, help shepherd them to, to try to see, you know, who they are and yeah. stuff. And then, and see what, what's the goal, that gold that's inside of them, because everybody has it. Yeah. Even people who aren't artists and, and writers, they probably have a book, right? You hear that said yeah, a lot, right. you know, we might want to make it short, the short <laughs> books in some cases, but, but I think it's just about it is about seeing them and then and then just doing your best to ask better questions, mm-hmm. like ask better questions of them, yeah, and different questions just to to get them to go on that journey. It's really uh, I, I still feel like I'm not really you know the director of a school of music. That's kind of an academic kind of title, right. um, a dean, a director, a chair, all that stuff. I feel like I'm the, I'm a, sh- I'm a shepherd of the school of music, uh-huh. you know, yeah. or a producer of the school <laughs> of music because it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. Because wow. it's, if you, the other thing about being that type of person and I didn't adopt it. I didn't say, Oh, I need to be, it's just honestly the way I'm wired. But the other thing about it is in, in the trajectory of a career, if, if you are like looking for the gifts of other people, um, you know, you as just take being a producer, you you can have a lot of diversity in what you do as a producer, because it's not, it's not all about you. It's not your ideas. And we're in a world where technology, where all these amazing talents that amazing, I work with them all the time. They program, they mix, they play, they, they use autotune, they beat detective and, and they can come out with amazing things, but it, but there can kind of be a homogenous aspect to it, mm-hmm. you know? So if you're more like, no, no, it's, it's not about my ideas. It's about your ideas. Then you're fostering something that is really beyond what your capabilities are, which is really fun. Yeah. Really fun. Yeah. There's a lot of joy in that too. I can imagine. I know a lot of times when counsel, people come to counselors with a, with a problem, mm-hmm. they don't actually know what their problem is, right? They think, <clears> they're, <throat> they think they're coming to get to deal with this problem, and the counselor says, no, 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 you really need to deal with this other thing instead. Yeah. Like, we're not very good at knowing what we actually need. Um, is that, do you have experiences like that in, in helping artists that they're trying to get through some creative block and they think they know what they need and... They don't. Mm-hmm. That's a simple answer. Okay. Yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I can even 
a test personally. I was such a workaholic in the first eight to 10 years and we had three kids and we all liked each other a lot. Debbie finally said, you know, this is not really working. And she's a strong person, very loyal, and uh, and just kind of put her foot down. I always say she found a big enough two-by-four to get my attention with, but she didn't really hit me or anything. <laughs> but she said, I'm not, you know, I don't think this is really marriage hmm. as it should be. She said, but I'm not going anywhere. But I might change the locks on the door. <laughs> she was serious. Like, we got to fix this. And, and it's funny, we went to counseling, and then uh, she found out uh, she was dealing with some issues that we spent about a year on. Uh-huh. So she thought I was, I was a problem. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I yeah. had my own set. And I, I, think, I think that does, uh, that does parallel in, in artists, especially when they get uh, stuck mm-hmm. or kind of in turmoil or feel like they're just not advancing or it might be a, it might be they feel competitive mm-hmm. and they're not going as fast as the person over in that lane. I mean, all sorts of different versions of that. Uh, and, and it, I would say it's, it's difficult to uh, sort of like detach whatever those things that are, kind of holding them back in the course of a four month project. Mm-hmm. But, but at the same time, I've really, I've really seen, you know, just trying to shepherd that process. I've seen some fruit in just helping them think of, think differently about something or think about something they're not thinking about, mm-hmm. or, Hey, let's get back to, let's just forget this right now. Let's take a, let's chill. Let's yeah. push the pause button. And man, I, I think it would be awesome if you just went to the woods and took a walk and, yeah. you know, had some time to kind of reflect on what are we trying to accomplish here? What do you want to say? So, yeah, I, I think it's, it's easy to be myopic as, as the creative, whatever version of creative yeah. you, you would want to pick. That's why, you know, Thomas Wolf and different people, what, that great, uh, what was that editor, Max something? I can't think of your name. Thomas Wolfe and Ernest Hemingway, and he was the editor mm-hmm. at the publisher uh, for a bunch of really well-known authors, and and he was so artful in navigating that, like yeah. like getting you know somebody to detach from a ten thousand word intro. To their book mm-hmm. or, or whatever. <laughs> um, so I, I think that's kind of a gift to do it. The thing about counselors is they don't really tell you anything. <laughs> yeah, right. They just ask you questions. And yeah, that's true. You've you got to figure it out still. So it, it is that process. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, the last question I wanted to ask you before my very last question. Wait a minute. The, last... the, next, the, the next last question. Okay. Yeah. Um, is I, I, I wonder what experience you have um, and what insight you have in getting a, um, a maker, right? A, a, an artist over the hump where I'm, I'm going to stop seeing, making music for what it's going to do for me. Mm-hmm. And instead I'm going to, Mm-hmm. Make something for other people. You know, I, I'm not. There's so much heartache mm-hmm. to be. You know, when I'm saying yeah, I'm going yeah. to write this or you know make this or perform this, yeah, because I expect you to do something for me. I mean, it, there's there's just yeah. almost the chance of that ending well or, or really not small. good. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and and I, you know when I think about your even the name of that class, artistry and identity. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like surely that's part of the part of the equation. There is getting people past that. Yeah. What, what's the? It's makers, takers. Is that kind of the sort of common terminology? I don't know that phrase, but that sounds right. I, I, I mean, uh, that was one of the breadcrumbs that Charlie had okay. in his little description, <laughs> and I was like, uh, I need to. 
So I'm like Googling it. I can't find it. So I got to go talk to Charlie. Yeah. But I think the, uh, I, I think that's one of certainly working through with artists through the years. Um, not that I helped artists be makers and, and not really thinking about the, the reward or whatever. I mean, you, you try to encourage people the right way, but, uh, I don't know. Is that not, you don't feel like that's part of your job to, to, I, I do to feel like it's, yeah, I actually do feel like it's part of my job is to encourage the, it's that purity of craft, the purity of the story, the purity of the idea, the purity of why, why am I doing this? Uh-huh. And that is in the identity mm-hmm. is, issues. Uh, so yeah, I do feel like it's part of my job, actually. I just don't know that I know how to do it really well. But but uh, what I would notice as I look back over 40-some-odd years of producing and lots of artists, it's interesting. Because you look at, I look at people like, I guess it's okay to name names, uh, Twilight Paris, uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman, Amy, Michael Smith, Charles um, Clay, and I, I never worked with him, but but you think about the people who have had really successful careers, but they've also uh, looked at the world much broader and said, "I have this great platform and resource, and I need to I need to serve the world, whether it's show hope, you know, mm-hmm. you know, adoption or." blood water mission or digging wells or all of that, where they're taking, taking what they've been given and then scaling it to help uh, people that need help. And it's just interesting to look at the people who have had really like in our, in the Christian music field uh, who've had really long careers. Yes. The art has continued to evolve and grow and they've developed and all of that. But, but almost without exception, they're involved in something bigger. Mm-hmm. It is not about themselves. Yeah. And so if you reel that back to young artists, um, it's hard. You know, I've worked with artists who were new artists who were 14 when I started working with them. Amy was 15 and a half. Uh, you know, I, I didn't make her a maker and a giver and a server. I mean, her family, you know, is just part of her yeah. DNA. But I think, um, I, I just think it's, it's compelling to think about what are the ways with um, young people, students, I'll just use students at, at uh, Lipscomb in our School of Music, what are ways we can encourage them to, um, you know, just like open a window to them to go, oh, wow. Yeah, like I'm, I'm building this, but I see out there in the pasture that, I, that there's this other thing, you know, just open doors. So, you know, we're just kind of beginning in that. I think we have kind of a neat opportunity. Lipscomb, lots of mission trips happen. The engineers go build a bridge or dig a well or this department, science department, does health stuff. And, and I keep thinking, well, what, what, what are, like, dumb old musicians? Like, <laughs> we're sort of like, we don't really have any, like, helpful skills, do we? Well, absolutely we do. You know, it's, like, unbelievable. So we're getting ready. There's this restaurant called the Cookery that we were going to start something where they, they sponsor homeless people right. off the street and teach them how to be sous chefs, sous mm-hmm. chefs. And, you know, thinking about, wow, we could go do music in the round and raise money to sponsor one of these. Yeah. You know, it's like getting, it's, it's getting people to step out this great opportunity where uh, these veterans with, with PSTD, mm-hmm. uh, we, they get professional songwriters and help them write a song. Oh, wow. And, and they want to involve our students, you know, in that sort of writing process. you imagine that? Yeah. Like as a 19-year-old, getting to see that and hear this story and, and, and see something. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's just, it's, it's kind of thinking about, um, 
I think we can, I guess I'm just saying, I think we can steward that and, and help encourage creatives to yeah. be makers. You, uh, the one, a, a recurring theme in this conversation seems to me is that, um, uh, where of course art is life giving. Yeah. But it, but it's not a whole life. Not a whole life. And I you're, love that. and I you're, love you know, it, when, when you talk about what happened to you at Belmont church, yeah. that seems to have sustained you yeah. in your creative life for a long time. Yeah. It's because it was something that was a whole lot bigger than your creative life. It was, it was life. <laughs> it was itself. abundant life. Yeah. yeah. Abundant life. Yeah. All right. So the last question, and I forgot to warn you about this question. Okay. So, but, uh, but I always ask in these episodes, who are the writers or makers who make you want to do your thing? Writer or, or make art. It's a good question. Uh, um, it's a good question. It's a lot of people from a long time ago, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Uh, as a producer, I'm I'm just so old school. Like the way it's like that's my job. We have all these other people doing all the other jobs, and now it's not like that as much. And um, y- you know. People like um, Arif Mardin and, of course, George Martin, obvious. Um, Russ Teitelman. Um, gosh, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of those. Even uh, oh, what's the guy that does did the Dixie Chicks? Oh, Rick Rubin. Mm-hmm character but but he knows something that other people don't know there's a big difference in just talking about producing uh it's a big difference between uh, a producer and what we know now as a track guy hmm. who can make all the notes yeah and get the rhythms and all that stuff producer is much more uh holistic it's shepherd it's friend it's companion it's advisor it's counselor. It's, I mean, it's so many, there's so many roles wrapped up in it. So I tend to think about uh, those kind of people. It was a great story that um, when I was recording, I um, can't remember, it was some Christmas album at George Martin's studio and it's a 17th century church, 65 foot ceiling, octagonal, beautiful building. And uh, all of a sudden the door opens and he walks in with his kind of assistant. Just wanted to meet you. You know, he's very gracious and all of that. And uh, we've been said, told, don't ask any beetle questions if he's around. He's around today. And then after he left, the engineer said, there's a great story with Chris. Um, I'm trying to remember the producer's name. Was producing an album on U2 at that studio and it also, so it was like the band and full orchestra and choir in the lofts and all that kind of stuff. And and he said, George came into the studio, just check on his friend, Chris. Sorry, I can't remember his last name. Um, and how's it going? And he said, man, I'm having so much trouble. Like, I'd love for you to listen to this and just help me here, you know? And so George listened to a little bit of it and then uh, they stopped the tape. And, and said, "What? What's wrong? Uh, or what should I do?" And and George said something like, "Well, I'm not sure exactly. As you think about it, what do you feel like is unnecessary hmm. in this in this picture?" And anyway, left. It was. It just kind of got into think solving the problem. And what the engineer said is. George is so deaf, he probably couldn't even tell what was going on. But somehow he navigated it because of those skill sets. Yeah. You know, which is really interesting. And that, to me, that's that's life. You know, that's like bringing life to the situation. And it's those people who have had those really kind of um, 
you know, the social IQ and the navigational psychological skills and relational skills to navigate really hard situations sometimes. Yeah. When your artist is crying in the vocal booth because she's doesn't like the way the session's going and you're you gotta go out and talk to her and go, what's wrong? And give her language for mm. what's what's yeah. wrong. It's just there's so much to it. And so when I think about being inspired, it's all those people. And then I go back and listen to all the like records from the 70s, especially the 70s, 80s, 60s, 70s, 80s, because uh, that there was an art form that was not mathematical, mm-hmm. even yeah. though music yeah. is mathematical. It wasn't science. It wasn't uh, fixed. It was performed and all the technology surrounding it was uh, it, it felt um, natural and yeah. not so processed. So it's it's that whole era. Yeah, now, I, I know that you you know were pre med in college. Yeah, and I think you would have met a great doctor. But you know, I'm really glad that you <laughs> end up doing what you do because I, I mean, th- there's this there's this skill set, not, and not just skills, just sort of a, 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 a an emotional intelligence. Yeah, that. That you have that that, that uh, it's great to see you you using it the way you do to you. to 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 help people be their best. So so thanks for all you've done and thanks for Thank being you. here for this. Oh man, what a ple- what an honor to be <laughs> on the first one of these. You kidding me? It's awesome. It's great. Well, thanks. All right. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song Too Good as part of this podcast. Visit JessRayMusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. 